Galatians tonight, and uh, we have Jeremy Fletcher that's going to give the word tonight. So please welcome Jeremy Fletcher. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would decrease me completely and that you would increase tonight, that your word would come forth powerfully, that it would touch us and influence us and impact us in such a powerful way that we would go away from here changed. Lord, I pray that not one would go away from here unchanged. Open our ears and our hearts to what you'd have to say to us today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so did everybody get a map? Did we pass these out yet? Did they come around? Oh, here here they come right now. Aaron is passing out a map. This map is going to show us just, I'm so visual, I have to see this. First thing I did was I looked at the map and where where is our story taking place? Where is it happening? Or where I should say is Paul writing to? Where are these people at? And so me being visual, I figured I would help you be be visual too. Anybody have one? All right, so take a look at this map. Do you see where I circled it there? That's the, the area called Galatia. And it It comprises of of a few different cities, at least on on the map that we see here. And the whole area geographically is is about 250 miles north to south and about 175 miles east to west, give or take. And there's actually four cities that are mentioned in the biblical text that are in Galatia that seem prominent and important. That doesn't mean that there aren't others, because it looks like in Galatia there's a few others that aren't mentioned as well. But we're looking mainly to the south here in Galatia. And the four cities are Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. So Acts chapter 13 tells us of Paul and Barnabas. They established churches in each of these Galatian cities. So there's at least four churches that we know of that are in the region known as Galatia, especially in the southern region. So since no other cities are mentioned, it's pretty safe to say that Paul's letter to the Galatians, to Galatia, is written to these specific cities, especially to the people here, and it's delivered to them. We also know that from Acts chapter 14, if you recall, Paul was nearly killed by those who were there, having been stoned and left for dead. It says there, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Now keep this in the back of your mind. We've got Jews coming in from from two of the cities. Okay, They came to Lystra. This all took place in Lystra. So they're coming from Iconium and Antioch. So they come in, and it says, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God." So needless to say that Galatia was far from the safest or most comfortable place for Paul to go to conduct his ministry to preach the gospel. I probably wouldn't want to go there, and for, for sure after what had happened to him. But I want you to look closely here at the, the heart that Paul has for these people. Very closely. We could scan through this text and just kind of go over it and say, oh, he got beat up, he was almost killed, and he goes back, and, you know, that's it. But I want you to focus in on Paul's heart because he's literally, by the crowd, beaten up, stoned, dragged out. Can you imagine what that's like? Taken out to the city, left for dead. He was presumed dead, but somehow, miraculously, he got up and he went back into the city. See, the picture of Paul is critical to understanding the very nature and character of Jesus. And this is ultimately going to set the stage for understanding of Galatians 4 and the whole book of Galatians. It's really going to help us to understand for the reason. So I I want you to imagine Paul for a moment. He's got bruises. He's got gashes all over. He's got, you know, he's probably bleeding. He's probably covered in blood from the stones that have hit him and cut him and scraped him and just slashed him. I mean, who knows what he looks like? His face is probably all bloody. He's probably, you know, he got concussion in his head. 
His arms might, an arm might even be broken or, or whatever. They dragged him. I'm sure they didn't just, you know, carefully pick him up and take him out. You know, they yanked him and threw him and dragged him and kicked him and who knows what happened. I would scarcely move if that happened to me. It's somehow he got up. He got up and he goes back into that city. Something inside said to him, I still love these people. God said, you're not finished here yet. You're going back in. So he gets back up and he goes back into the city. Who knows, maybe to encourage another couple brothers. Who knows, maybe someone else came to Christ when he went back that time. Who knows what took place, but he went back. And I want you to see the picture of our impassioned Heavenly Father because it's mirrored here in Paul's very act of returning to the city. I see now, get this picture in your mind, the beaten, blood-covered, unrecognizable body of Jesus hanging on the cross and uttering these words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Imagine this scene for a moment as he's hanging on the cross, about to give up his life. Jesus was battered because of your sin and my sin. He could have said, Father, give them what they deserve. Look at what they've done to me. Look at all this wicked, wretched people. Give them what they deserve. But instead, you and I have life eternally because we believe that only Jesus can forgive our wicked sins and only he could pay the great price that it took for death on the cross in order that we might be washed clean and presented before God as spotless, as stainless, and and have nothing to us but the righteousness of Christ. Nothing else. But that's all we need. The righteousness of Christ being perfect and presented holy to, to God. And that's what he did on that cross. And we need to understand that. I know it seems like, oh, we know that story. We know this elementary teaching, right? But this is the very foundation. This is the very fundamentals that was going wrong in the church of Galatia. They didn't understand this. They had left this. And we're going to see this here shortly as we start to uncover what was going on in Galatia at this time. Only Jesus, who was perfect, who was God in the flesh in human form, could ever bear the burden of sin and guilt and shame that... We all have. His grace and only his grace is sufficient. He bore it and he took it away at that cross. So we didn't have to bear it any longer. So as we open the book of Galatians, we're going to begin to answer a couple of questions. There's a question that begs to be answered in Acts chapter 14, verse 19 there. And the question is, what could those Jews from Antioch and Iconium have said that would have persuaded the crowd to stone him. I mean, what, <laughs> what's going on here? If you recall, previously in that chapter, they were about to make Paul, you know, a, a god, basically. They were so excited because he just healed a crippled guy, you know, they're like, oh, we're going to make a sacrifice for you, and, you know, you must be Zeus, you know? I mean, and then all of a sudden, you know, 10 minutes later, they're, they're stoning him and dragging him out of the city. What's going on? What were the people persuaded to believe from these Jews coming down here? In Paul's salutation to the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 4, he very clearly articulates the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross. So this is the very, the very beginning of Galatians, okay? He says this, He gave himself, Jesus, for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father. So we see a couple of things straight up here as he, as he engages with the Galatians here, as he writes this letter. He makes it clear that the people of Galatia were living presently in an evil age, And that it would only be Jesus who could deliver them from it. And ultimately that that was the will of the Father. For them to be delivered from this evil age that they were stuck in. So what specifically is the next question then? What specifically is the evil surrounding the Galatian church? Well, Paul doesn't beat around the the bush in verse 6 and 7. If you recall, he he says what? The truth, the gospel, is being distorted. He says the people are deserting Christ for another man-made gospel or another teaching, something that they're getting that is not correct. It's being distorted. He then makes a very empathetic, empathetic, empathetic statement. I can't even say it. Emphatic statement. There you go. Emphatic statement. He says this, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. And he says it twice. Now, this is the opening, the opening to this letter to them. Bam, 
Something's going on here. Something is up in Galatia that we need to be aware of. The gospel has been distorted. And Paul takes this very, very seriously, as should we. And the question begs us to answer, is the gospel really real? Is it really true in our life? Or has it been somehow distorted by the world in some way, shape, or form? And I want you to think about that in general for a moment here as we go into this. Our situation today is, you know, really not very different from the Galatian church. We are bombarded with all sorts of lies and half-truths that can easily sway us from the ultimate truth of the gospel one way or the other, right? If we do not test what we hear by the word of God, and furthermore, if we don't take time to get to know the word of God and to get to know the author of the word of God, God himself, then we're going to be easily thrown and tossed by every wind of doctrine that takes us this way and that way and here and there and everywhere. Colossians 2.8 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So that means we can be taken captive not just the people of Galatia, but you and I can be taken captive too. And it can go from a simple understanding of the gospel, a foundational understanding, to, whoa, we've somehow gotten off over here, and how did that happen? We've, been, we've bought a lie, and that's the, that's the foundation of sin, you know, we, to, to buy a lie and to go with it and to run with it. And pretty soon we've, we've been taken captive by the enemy, which is exactly what he wants to do. And this is what Paul comes to warn them about. The people were being taken captive by two types of Jews, two types of Jews. Those who were much like Saul or Paul, I should say before, Saul of Tarsus, who was violently and vehemently persecuting the church. Remember, he was, it says he was like breathing violence, you know, breathing agitation toward the people, you know, and he'd go from house to house and literally take the people out of their homes, men, women, children, and throw them into prison. And, And you remember, he was there for the first death, the first martyr, Stephen of the church. And he watched and he said, this is good. This is good. Then there were the Judaizers, the second group of Jews, who had made a commitment or a superficial profession to Christ. And these guys basically turned back to their adherence of the rules and rituals and laws of Judaism as their basis of salvation and right standing with God. So they basically said, okay, okay, we kind of like this idea of Christ, but, you know, they, they took one step forward, I guess, and made a profession of Christ, didn't really have a foundation of what the gospel was, and then took 10 steps backward, back to what they had known for so long, and said, well, in order to get right with God, we have to obey all these rules, and we have to do thus and so, and, you know, the burden is on us, and we're going to make sure it's on you too. So that's, that's what these Judaizers were. These guys had, had effectively taken the work of Jesus on the cross out of the equation leaving only works of righteousness as a means to God. So this is essentially what the problem was going on in the church of Galatia here. Very important to understand. So Paul immediately states the problem of a distorted gospel, one that is man's gospel, not the gospel of Christ. He cuts to the chase right away, and he begins to establish his authority, God's authority, and Christ's authority ultimately. So he does that at the get-go. He says, look, hey, I come from Jesus. I'm not here as an apostle of, you know, of myself or, you know, I don't come on my own opinion or my own feeling. I come here because Jesus sent me here. And Jesus wasn't just come as a man on his own authority or sent, you know, just all of a sudden poof appeared out and, you know, God sent him. So ultimately, my authority comes directly from God through Christ and now to you. Directly from the words of heaven. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Christ Jesus and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul reminds the people that before he was Paul, he was immersed in the traditions of my fathers, he called it, which is those rules and traditions and all that that we talked about before. He was immersed in that. He also reminded them that he sought out Peter and the boys for affirmation and support. Now, so he goes, he he comes in right after he's converted, right? He goes to the apostles and he says, okay, I, I need your support here. I'm, he, he preaches the gospel, and, and they make sure that they line up, that they're on the same team here, that there's, you know, they, they all have the same foundation of the gospel. 
And of course, the others were looking on Peter and the boys and the other apostles. They, they gave them authority and, and credence and, and all that to a certain respect. And so they just wanted, he wanted to be on the same team. He's saying, look, hey, Peter and these guys, we're preaching the same thing here. It's the same gospel. I want you to understand. So he's building this, this level of authority here. He's building the truth up so that they might believe. Paul reminds the people, he also reminded them that when he sat out the boys, while he was with the other apostles, Paul noted in chapter 2, verse 3, now he's setting the stage for what the distorted gospel is. Check this out. He says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Titus was with him when he went to the apostles. And the apostles did not say, Titus, dude, you're a Greek, you're not a Jew, so therefore you've got to be circumcised. You've got to take care of this, buddy, in order, in order that you might gain favor into the family of God or the Christian faith now and in order to be saved by Jesus. It wasn't like that. So that rule was, was set aside. Titus was good. He was good, uncircumcised. He was okay. He was welcomed in. And so he puts this thought in their mind. Okay, wait a second. Maybe these rules are, are, are not exactly how it's supposed to be. This leads up, leading up to the bold proclama- proclamation of justification by faith and not of works. See, Titus wasn't made right with God because he got circumcised, as we said. He was justified because he believed in the work that Jesus had done on the cross for his own sins. He believed. He really believed. That's what got him saved. That's what brought him into the family. He knew that no human good works could ever, could ever, ever measure up to the standards and expectations of God. And nothing, nothing that we do, nothing that we do could ever measure up. The laws are there, as we'll learn later on, to simply show us that we don't measure up and to show us how badly we need a Savior. So Paul's building his case in Galatians here. And here's the climax, one of the climaxes, I believe, in the first part of Galatians. I believe it's this uh, chapter 2, verse 20, if you want to flip there real quick and read this along with me. We're getting to chapter 4, I promise. I just felt like we needed to set this foundation before we jumped in. Chapter 2, verse 20. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So go back to that picture of Jesus on the cross. And imagine, think about maybe just in the last week or day or whatever you want to think of, the, the sins that you have committed, the thoughts that you've had, the things that you've done, the things that you have said that are not okay. Now think about that for your whole life, and all of that is put up on the cross with Jesus. Just yours. Just yours. It is put up there, and he's bleeding and dying and suffering from all of that. And what this is saying is that that was put up there and it was crucified and died with Jesus. That no longer, no longer was it put back on you. It was not yours anymore. Jesus took it on and he killed it. And now you don't live anymore as you once did, but Christ lives within you. And even though you still walk in the flesh, even though you still live in the world, you live by faith in God that he's going to carry you through and get you what is needed and take care of you. And yes, his grace is sufficient for you. That's what he's saying here. Now, before we jump into four, we're almost there, I promise. There's one more thing I want to show you in chapter three that I think is, is incredible. Paul takes the argument of faith versus works, and he takes it clear back to the beginning of the Bible, to the Old Testament, to Abraham, all the way back. Now, you recall from John chapter eight that the Jews considered Abraham their father. There was an argument that they were having, and, you know, Jesus was saying, he's talking about himself and, and, and the father, and, and the Jews said, well, Abraham's our father, right? Who are, who are you to talk about the father as if he's yours, and if you're the, you know, all this. Abraham is our father. It says, God, 
and, and God made the covenant, covenant with Abraham. You remember what said that Abraham would be the father of a multitude of nations back in Genesis chapter 13, 14, 15. And it says the name, the name Abraham actually means father of a multitude. And God said to Abraham, now check this out, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Let's break that down just briefly here. The word that captures the essence of this all is everlasting. Everlasting. This signifies salvation with God forever. Because if it's everlasting, and obviously the people know that they will die at some point, that means that they're going to be with God, that there's a promise that they will be with him forever. This is way back in the Old Testament now. The people knew this. So God comes to Abraham and gives him this promise of everlasting life, which would come through his offspring, ultimately through Jesus, the ultimate offspring. And this is the culmination of it all. So, but look at how Abraham received the covenant. Here's what's what's really important. He didn't work for it. God came down and said, here it is. I'm promising it to you. Galatians 3.6 quotes uh, from Genesis 15, verse 6. You don't have to go. If you want to look in uh, Galatians 3.6, it's right there. It says, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord... Check it out. Faith here. He believed what God said. He believed the promise that was coming to him that God would be with him forever. And from his offspring, the whole world, all peoples, all nations would be blessed through his offspring. And he probably didn't understand exactly, you know, that that would be Jesus and who that would be in all the details. But he knew that somehow, some way it would happen and he believed God. And it says, furthermore, and he counted, and God counted it to him as righteousness. He was justified by his faith. He didn't have to work for the righteousness that was counted to him. That means that righteous, the righteousness of God was imputed upon him, was given to him. He didn't work for it. He didn't run around for it. He didn't marry the right girl for it. He didn't have kids for it. It was given to him because he believed. Righteousness came through Abraham through one means, belief in the Lord. He couldn't earn it, couldn't work for it. And his righteousness apart from the Lord was nothing, nothing. Paul tells the Galatians, hey, if you really are the children of Abraham, you would believe. You really would. Know then that it is of those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. What exactly in you will bless all the nations? course only one and that's jesus in you jesus will come through your line hundreds of years later and will bless all of the nations until jesus was revealed in the world the people were held captive under the law the law was enacted to show us that we possibly we can't possibly get to god right his, his standards of perfection are so far above ours under the law we're ultimately condemned to hell we're done for we're we're doomed And you know that our best works of righteousness are like filthy rags to God. And it seems to be like a depressing message, like, okay, well, that's, you know, I'm I'm screwed then. There's nothing I can do. But that's where the great grace of God comes in with Jesus. And we'll, gosh, I could jump on that. We're going to do more later. Now, go with me. We're going to jump in now. We're close to verse 4, chapter 3, verse 25. We've got to get into it a couple verses here. Okay. Chapter 3, verse 25. Are you there? It says, but now that faith has come. All right, so jump ahead. We're jumping ahead from Abraham now. Faith has come. Whose faith? Faith is Jesus. Faith has come. We are no longer under the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Uh Uh-huh. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. 
We say that again. Now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham, going all the way back. You are his heirs. Not heirs like E-R-R-O-R-S, but you are his heirs, recipients of his inheritance. What is his inheritance? It's Jesus, and it's life everlasting. And gosh, if, I, w- I wonder if Abraham had any clue that that's what his inheritance would be to the people. You know, he's probably thinking, you know, when God said, oh, it's going to be like all the stars in the sky, count them, and, you know, you're going to be so, so many and all this. He's like, oh, that's cool. You know, I'm just going to have a mighty family, and who knows what it's going to be, maybe a great land somewhere or whatever. And, you know, like, that's part of it. But, but did he know that it would be Jesus and life everlasting with God forever? How incredible is that? All right. Chapter 4, verse 1. We have arrived. Sort of. Now, this part is, is in the NLT. I'm going to switch back and forth a little bit between NLT and ESV just to kind of helps explain a little bit, I think. So it says verse 1 and 2, actually. Think of it this way. So he's going on now talking about, okay, what does this mean? You're his heirs, and now all of the promises God gave to him belong to you. Talking about Abraham. Okay, so it says, think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves great wealth for his young children, okay, father dies, leaves an inheritance, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father has set, and that's the way it was before with us, before Christ came. We were slaves to the spiritual powers and elementary principles of the world. All right, a little bit of cultural background here because we kind of need it to understand the text. See, in this ancient culture, not like actually some modern cultures now, um, there were ceremonies and a specified age of, of coming of age. And, and it was different. There, was, there were several cultures in that day and age. You had Romans and, and Jews and so on and so forth. And for the Jews, it was 12 years old. And it still is, the bar mitzvah, and I believe it's bat mitzvah for the young ladies. And they go through this ceremony, and, and once they reach this age, they ultimately are, become adults and can take on more responsibility and have more privileges and so on and so on. And, you know, we also have today in, in some Latino cultures, we have the quinceanera for young ladies when they reach 15 years old. So kind of a similar thing. So up until this coming of age, the child was under the authority of, of usually it was a few tr- like trusted slaves in the family. So the family owned slaves, and there would be a few that were, you know, would teach the kids and would, you know, raise them and, you know, mature them and do everything that they needed to do to help them in their, in their growth through adolescence. So it wasn't until coming of age that we said that a child would be able to take hold of these responsibilities and really understand what was going on as an adult. You know, what, what was this inheritance that was coming to them? And, you know, what, what did they have to do as a part of this family to continue it forward? And, you know, what was going on here? So traditionally at the coming of age, the child no longer had an elementary understanding of things. So through this time, they would develop an understanding of what's going on. They would show maturity, and therefore they were given the responsibility and privilege, okay? So the word child that he uses here is actually means infant, like not understanding at all. So he goes back to, you know, comparing them to, you know, to infants, like not knowing. And this is how we were before we came to Christ. We were like children. We were blind. We didn't understand the gospel. We didn't understand the fundamentals of, of, of belief in Jesus and and where we were going and what our purpose was and what life was all about. We didn't get it at all. We were blind to spiritual things, and we were caught up in our own false beliefs and our worldly desires and whatever we wanted to do. We lived for us, and we did crazy things. We wanted to run our own lives. We didn't want to be, you know, have any boss over us. We didn't want to have any guardian there to tell us what to do and show us how to do it. We wanted to run our own show. Verse 4 says, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. Now, this is interesting. I love when he says, but when the time came, God is always on time. He's never late, and he's never early. And I know some of us are even asking him right now, why haven't you done this yet? Or why haven't, hasn't this happened yet? Why haven't you this and that and so on and so forth? 
And just know that God is never late. He is never early. He is always on time. And while we don't understand and can't see the big picture of things, all we can do is take one step forward at a time. We have, can't see it all, but we trust that God is good, and we trust that he's going to continue to lead us and hold us by the hand and get us to where he wants us to be in his perfect will. But if we try to go outside of that, we're going to find ourselves in a place that we really don't want to be, that's going to hurt us, that's going to be destructive, that's going to rip us apart from our relationship with Jesus. A question to you tonight, are you walking faithfully step-by-step with him every day? Or do you kind of take a few steps to the side and then you kind of venture back and maybe you go in circles, go backwards a little bit? Maybe you're just doing a dance. I don't know. But God wants you to walk with him. His timing is perfect. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 25 and 26, don't go there. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, Jeremiah, Jeremiah says this. It says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. What a great, what a great promise. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So see where it says back in verse 4, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. So we see that God entered the world through humanity. Check this out. He entered the world through humanity to overcome humanity. God entered in humanity through it, through a real person, into the real world, in order that he might overcome and show his conquering power over it, in order to show that he is in control. God entered the world to purchase our freedom from slavery to the law. Now, verse 5 says this. God sent him, let's look at that freedom here. God sent him, Jesus, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. So this is the problem happening in Galatia. They were slaves to the law. They thought they could do it, as, we, as we've already talked about. They thought they could make it on their own. They could cross off this check. I've kept this commandment. I've done this. I've done this good work. I've done that. You know, but really, really, what is the feeling when you're bound by the law? You're, you feel condemned because you can, never, you can never rise to the occasion. And that's what people in the, the world who are, who are bound by the law and enslaved to the law feel. They feel condemned. And that's why there's so much depression. That's why there's no hope. Because where do you go? You can't measure up. So the question is, are they slaves to the law or slaves to Christ? Let's go on here. Let me read verse 5 one more time. I just, God sent him to buy freedom for us who are slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. All right, imagine this. God's watching TV, and there you are in one of those Christian network specials, maybe Compassion International, you know, one of those, right? They tell your story of how you've been enslaved and abused, taken from one orphanage to the next, given up for dead. They show your belly bulging out from malnutrition. You've been beaten, you've been mistreated, you've been neglected. God's heart melts at the sight of this horrible image of you. And instead of picking up the phone and saying, I commit to $30 a month, he gets right away on Heaven Force One, and he goes right to the site where you are to meet you. This may have some theological holes in it, but just bear with me. He asks how much it would be to adopt you. And they give him this price that's, you know, outrageous. You know how expensive adoption can be. The price was steep, and, you know, God didn't have any local currency. He said to the current guardian that was somehow taking care of you at the time, he said, you know, I love this little guy so much that I'll give you my only son as a ransom for his life if you'll give him to me. So he did just that. God's son was mistreated by your former guardian. He was beat up, abused, neglected. He was worked so hard he couldn't stand any longer, and he ultimately died, his only son. All the while, the father was cleaning you up and giving you food, holding you, making you strong again, and breathing life into you. All the while, his son 
was being mistreated and killed. Paul is trying to convey that in order to adopt you as sons and daughters, God had to give up his only son to excruciating death on the cross. Imagine that scene again as he's, as he's hanging up there on the cross. Not a, not a pretty sight as the artist would, would render it, but someone who is not even recognizable as a human being. And he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive us for they don't know what they're doing. You will either be adopted by the world, which represents the law, or you will be adopted by Jesus. There's only two choices. Only two. The law is full of condemnation. You aren't good enough. We talked about this. You must be thus and so to please me, says the world. You're too fat. You're too ugly. You're too short. You're too geeky. You're defiled trash. Your bank account isn't large enough. Your sins are far too horrible to ever merit forgiveness in life. I can't even stand to look at you. That's how Satan uses the law to twist it, to condemn you, to tell you lies. But in actuality, without Satan even whispering those lies into us, we're already condemned by the law already. I mean, look at us. We're, we're a bunch of losers. My sins are horrible. Yours are too. I wonder if God were to peel back the mask, the carefully constructed mask that we tend to live under and revealed all that was there to all of us here. Start with, who who are we going to start with here? What would we think? What would we do? Would we be okay with that? Praise God that we don't have to be a son or daughter of the law. We can be adopted into God's family and his child, and all of those things that we tend to want to hide behind the mask are given up at the cross. They're gone. Verse 6 and 7 says, And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There's a lot to chew on right there. Let's start with Abba, Father. Abba means daddy. Now I want you to imagine a little child and a father. A little child running to his father, jumping into his father's arms, feeling comfort, security, trust, in his father's arms, desiring to run to his father's arms, desiring as soon as daddy is there, coming there, he man, runs in and jumps in. He can't, he's so excited to see him. So excited. That is the spirit that has been put into our hearts. And perhaps for some of us, that spirit has grown weak because we don't have that excitement sometimes to run into our father's arms like that and cry out, daddy. And maybe for some of us, we didn't have that father, daddy, that actual human father that we could run into. We didn't have a mother. But the promise here is that no matter what, that God is daddy. He is father. He's not just, you know, big father, what, what do you want? You know, he, he's not looking down upon you. He's crouching down and kneeling down and ready to receive you. That's what he is saying here. Do you pray like you're talking to daddy, so close and so intimate? Remember Psalm 116 where it says that God inclines his ear. He gets down really close, really, really close. He's not just up there far away, you know, like, what did you say? A little louder. Pray a little longer. He gets down really close, face to face, and he says, I'm right here. I want to I talk to you. I want to hear what you have to say. Tell me, tell me what's on your heart. Now think about what it means to, to be an heir to something. Think of a famous person. I don't know. What famous person jumps into your mind? You know, it's different for all of you. Someone who has a lot of money, a lot of fame, a sports player, you know, famous movie star. I don't know. 
Now, let's say that just by chance, you happen to be a family member, a great grandson or granddaughter or whatever to this person, and they're about ready to die, and you're about to get all of their inheritance. Wow. I mean, mansions and cars and airplanes and you know, money and all of these things. I mean, you get all of it. Wow. Incredible. Sounds pretty good. But imagine now for a moment that you got that stuff and you went through it all and you realized that, gosh, this doesn't leave me any happier than where I was before. And, but now I want you to imagine what it would be like to be an heir of God. And not just an heir like when God dies, because he doesn't die, right? You get to be an heir alongside of him in his presence. You get to enjoy his presence and all of the things, all of the great gifts that he offers with him, not to mention heaven and life eternally, which is the greatest and most important. Paul is reminding these Galatian people that, gosh, you guys have abandoned your first love. Get back to understanding that you're a slave to the law, but no, 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 no. Come over here and be a slave to Jesus. It is so much better over here. That's what he wants them to see and wants them to understand and ultimately wants us to understand as well. Verse 8. Formerly, you, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Now let me stop there for a second. Now remember back in Acts chapter 14, He's referring back to, and I mentioned it briefly earlier, where they thought that when Paul had healed that crippled guy, right, they thought that he was a god. So they're like, oh, we're, you know, we're going to give sacrifices into him. And then, you know, Paul was like, oh, he's ticked, right? He, 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 broke, he, he ripped his shirt. And he's like, no, guys, come on. Don't you understand that it's not me? It's, you know, I'm just like one of you guys. I, I'm, I'm like, one of you, I'm no better than you. The power comes from God, not from me. I'm not, you know. These elementary, you know, Greek mythology and gods, this is not it. We serve a living God, a living and breathing God. That's what he's talking about here when he's referring back. Come on, get rid of these elementary principles. Don't you understand? And then he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. So you have all of these rituals that you go through. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. So Paul is now, his heart is breaking. He's reaching out to these guys and he's saying, because he was here, he visited them before. Now this is a letter to them after the fact, right? But he's with them. He had been with them before and, and he thought that they understood the gospel and all this. And, and now he's saying, come on guys, what has happened to you? And now we're going to hear part, you can just see the tears coming down Paul's face in this next part here. As we say, let's, let's go to... Um, Verse 10 here says, You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that you may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. Now he's going to talk about what, what took place when Paul was there before. You did me no wrong when I was here before. You knew it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So Paul had some sort of disease, and they think it might have been malaria or something that he had. And he was coming in, and he still, he preached the gospel and did did as much work for the kingdom as he could. And the people took really good care of him. He said, you guys received me like like an angel and, and like Christ Jesus would have done. You were really good to me. Remember back. Remember. Remember back how it was. And I think that's what we have to do sometimes. We've got to remember back because we forget so easily. Remember back when you first trusted Jesus. Remember back when you met with Jesus the last time, yesterday, the day before, how, how good it was, how incredible it was. Have you forgotten already? And he says, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or decide to, or despise me again, but receive me as an angel. What then has become of the blessing you felt? So we know that they were completely blessed because they were able to take care of Paul. And it's so true. I mean, when we're able to take care of someone, a brother or sister, I mean, we're so blessed by that. 
probably more than they are. I mean, and that's what we're called to do. We're called to have our eyes open and ears open for, for the hurting people around us. Person sitting next to you, you don't know what they're going through. They might, be ha- they might have something really heavy on their heart right now. Even tonight when you get up, are you just going to walk out or are you going to say something to them or, you know, I don't know, get to know somebody here tonight. Go out of your comfort zone a little bit. For I testify to you, continue on in verse 15, that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That's how gracious these people were to Paul. Can you imagine that? Like they would just gouge their eyes out, taking them out. Bam, here you go. Here you go. They're yours. They're yours, Paul. We don't need them anymore. We want you to have them more than we do. How incredible is that? Verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you. Now they, verse 17. Let's go back real quick to 16 there. He says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? This is important. Sometimes we don't like to hear the truth. Another brother or sister will come up to us and, and tell us something that, gosh, you know, we really don't want to hear. Maybe cuts at the heart of what's going on. But you know what? They have the boldness to, to do it. They have the boldness because they care and they love you. And God does the same thing too. He cuts right to the chase. He cuts right to the heart. That's what the word of God does. It pierces through the, to the deepest parts of our, of our bone marrow, to the depths of our heart. That's what his word does. It goes deep. It goes far. It doesn't stay on the surface. It's not about being on the surface. Who wants to be on the surface? That's when we put that mask back on, and it's like, uh, no. That's not where true fellowship is at. That's not where Jesus is. Jesus is in the depths. He comes out to the surface to pull you in. So when you hear truth being spoken by a brother or sister who loves you, please consider it. Consider what they're saying. And he goes on in verse 17, he says, they who are the Judaizers, the Jews that are causing trouble, that are saying all sorts of different things. He says, they make much of you. They say you're pretty cool. They come out and they say, hey, kind of like you. You're, you're awesome. You look good. Like your style, like your clothes. It says, but for no good purpose. So what's their motive here? It's not good. They want to shut you out that you make make much of them. So here's what they want to do. They want to elevate themselves. First they come in and they, they puff you up. They say, oh, you look so good. Oh, you guys are amazing. Oh, you're so talented, beautiful. And then what they do is they elevate themselves and they kind of shut themselves out. They become an elite group, right? They, their corner is over here so that you might look at them and go, whoa, I want to be a part of that group. That looks cool over there. They're the, they're the in crowd. I want to be like them. And so you see what their motives are here. It says, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. So it's not a bad thing to compliment somebody or to make much of someone. You know, you did a great job or, you know, God bless you, man. You know, been really faithful. Thank you so much for what you did for me. That type of a thing is okay for good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He says, again, guys, I, I am so hurting for you because you've taken it all wrong. You've taken in their, their praise and their, their just, you've taken it all in wrong. They've got the wrong motives. And he equates it to childbirth. It's like I'm groaning because the baby's not born yet, you know, or I'm in birth right now. I have no idea what that's like. There are a few people, maybe a couple of you in here that have, have had children, and you know exactly what that feels like. But of course, the reward is great when that child comes out. But he's in that process where baby hasn't popped yet, and it's still there, and it won't come. You know, ah, what does that feel like? But he's, but he's saying that out of deep compassion because he cares for them. So Paul literally goes, I mean, he doesn't have any praise for them in the beginning. He slams and he's like, you guys have distorted the gospel. You've messed it up. You've believed a lie. You've done all this stuff. But now he shifts the focus and he's, well, he doesn't really shift the focus, but he comes out like an impassioned father. He says, come, come back. Do you, do you understand what you're doing? He's begging and pleading with them. And that's what God does to us. He begs and pleads with us all the time. 
Come back to me. Why, why have you gone off and done this over here? Why are you off doing that? No, why, why, why have you lost your focus? Why do you not believe I'm good anymore? I am good, trust me. You may be going through a lot. I, I may have allowed you to go through this, but I'm going to take responsibility to clean it up, to mop it up, and to get you back on your feet. If you just trust me and walk with me, keep going. That's what he's saying. I wish I could be present with you, verse 20. Wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. I don't understand what's going on. You can just hear the, the, the tone change in his voice. All right, let's keep going. Verse 21. Thanks for bearing with. We're, we're moving on here. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So you guys know the story? Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael, and Sarah, Sarah and Abraham. So they got really old, right? Can't have children. Sarah's barren. You know, probably not going to happen. Too old. You know, plumbing's not working anymore. And, uh, you know, that's just not happening. You know, may- maybe it's Abraham, though. Maybe he's the one that's, you know. So let's try. Okay, let's try it. You know, let's try the slave, slave one. Maybe she can, maybe this will work with her. You know, so Abraham, her, and, you know, has Ishmael. And ultimately, the rest of the story, remember when God told Abraham, hey, you're going to have a son. You're, and he laughs at him, right? <laughs> like, you're crazy, dude. Crazy, God. It's not going to happen. It's, it's impossible. But continuing on, so he talks about the slave woman. So he had one, one child, Ishmael, by Hagar, who was the slave, and then one, ultimately, Isaac, by the free woman, which was his own wife, Sarah. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. It was not the will of God, correct? If he would have waited on God and and been patient, he would have realized that God's promise, and he made that promise to, um, God made the promise to Abraham way back. He said, hey, your descendants, remember remember the stars? He said, okay, your offspring is going to be as great as the stars, and it's going to be with your wife. It's going to be your own children, your own children. So he just forgot the promise, and and do we forget God's promises many times? He says, well, the son of the free woman was born through promise. He made the promise. And remember at that time that Abraham believed. But he quickly forgot. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. So he's going to draw a picture here, make an inference here. These women are two covenants. Two covenants. Now, what is a covenant? Uh, a covenant is something that is agreed upon without, that cannot be broken for any reason whatsoever. When God made that covenant with Abraham, it was not based on what Abraham could do or what Abraham did. God didn't say, well, Abraham, I'm going to make this covenant to be your God forever if you do thus and so or if you don't do that. No, there was, no, there was nothing like that. God's covenant, that's what a covenant is. And that's what a marriage covenant is supposed to be. We call it not a marriage promise, but a marriage covenant. It is forever, no matter what, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. No matter what happens. So it says, now this may be interpreted allegory. We said, so these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So this is the slave woman. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. Now Hagar, verse 25, is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Okay, so they're making, again, he's going back to that juxtaposition between being slave to the law and being free through the promise of faith, believing the promise that God is going to redeem us and be with us forever and ever. It says in verse 27, for it, is ri- for it is written, and this comes from Isaiah, rejoice, 50, uh, chapter 54, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more 
than those of one who has a husband. Things might not be going okay right now, right? It might be really desolate right now. Things might be pretty crummy. Things might be just downright horrible right now. But what does that say? The promise is for the desolate one, for us who, who are going through the valleys, who are going through some of these, these horrible issues, whatever they may be. The promise is for the desolate one. And what does it say? It says, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, can't have kids, Ah, but here's the promise for the children of the desolate one, the one who's going through that, all of those things will be more than those of the one who has a husband. What an incredible promise. Cling to that. Cling to that. If you are in a point of desperation right now, if you are in a place of desolation right now, know that the promise is for you. Verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, now Isaac was his child through Sarah, through his actual wife. Now brothers, like Isaac, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So what is he saying now? Those Jews over there, they're not, they're not born of the promise. They're the ones persecuting you. You need to open your eyes and understand that. See who they are. But just at that time, those who were born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but we are children of the free woman. When the sun sets free, we are free indeed. Jesus has given us life. He has set us free. We are born with a promise. Back over in Galatians chapter 1, Paul said, I love this statement that he says. It's verse, um, verse 15. He's just talking about his, all the horrible things he was doing to the church and the life he was living. He says, but when... But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, you were set apart before you were born. Well, you were in the mother's womb. You were finally knit together, Psalm 139 says. Knit together painstakingly, not put on a conveyor belt and in the factory and, you know, with the computer and, you know, with all the machinery, but knit together ever so carefully to be God's poema to be God's workmanship. And he said, my creation is good. And he gives us a promise. And I pray that we would all remember that promise and that we would continue to step, walk step by step with him, believing that promise, because it is only through believing in Jesus that we will get to be with him forever and that we understand and we get to be free from, from guilt and, and slavery to the law. Are you, are you free tonight? Or have you put on those, as Josh likes to say, those toys are, up, toys are Us handcuffs? I love that analogy. You've been free, but yet, no, I'm going to put them back on. I'm enslaving myself again. No, rip them off because you are free. You are free. Now live like it. And Lord, I pray that if there are any here that are not free, Lord, that you would just rock their world, God that your word would convict, that your word would bless, that it would cause questions to arise. Lord, that you'd ultimately draw, draw those to yourself, God. And I pray, Lord, for family members of those here. All of us have family members who, Lord, don't know you. And we are praying for them daily, Lord. We are crying out to you for them. We pray that they would come into your family as well, Lord. We pray that you would do a mighty work in them, God. We pray that you would draw them to yourself. And use us in whatever way you would. Use us, God, to, to bring our neighbors and to, to bring those we come in contact with closer to you, God. I pray that you'd use us in mighty ways. Lord, if there's any here that are off track, which is so easy to do, would you get us back on track? Please, Lord. We love you so much. We want to worship you forever, Lord. I pray that we'd stay close to you 
and that we'd get to know you as daddy. We'd get that image of a father running toward his son and the son running toward the father. And I pray that you would find us running toward you, Lord, with our arms open and outstretched, ready to jump into your arms where you want us to be, where we belong. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us and giving us that way, for saving us, for dying on the cross, Lord, so that our guilt and our shame and our sins could be scattered as far as the east is from the west. Thank you so much, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.